Hey, hey, welcome everyone uh, to the Disability Law Show. So good to have you along again this week. It's uh, really simple to uh, to contribute to the show, which we always invite you to do so. Send along an email to Tamara Gopian, also here as well, co-hosting the show. Partner, Sam Firu, Tamar, and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this entire country. Reach out to Tamar and her team if you have any questions, queries, or issues. You're dealing with a long-term disability insurer. Maybe you're on the verge of being cut off. Maybe you won't get accepted. Maybe you have a problem with your claim. Maybe they've asked you to appeal. We love that. Anyway, uh, all these problems can be sorted out with a uh, discussion. Anyway, start there. one 855 821 1-855-821-5900. 855-821-5900. Help at And I'll give you a couple different websites throughout the uh, the hour that you can use as well. One of them is ltdfaq.ca. Simple website to use. Free. Anonymous, of course. And there's a... Uh, Number of boxes dealing with different aspects of disability law. You click on them, there's a drop-down menu, easy-to-read memos and all that stuff. You'll learn a ton, and it'll cost you nothing. But uh, we'll get into some emails here in just a bit tomorrow, but we always start off the week that was. Pal, what do you got going on? What do I have going on? So I got a call from a woman this week that uh, was a bit distressing. She was just declined her disability benefits after being on, on claim for a couple of years, and Generally speaking, I want to protect her her privacy, but I wanted to start off the to- the show rather talking about the situation she finds herself in, John. And so she had a physical disability, actually multiple things going on. She has a had a repetitive job that she had been doing for a very long time. Like I think she said to me something like thirty years. And before she went on her disability leave, she actually approached her longtime employer to talk to them about accommodation and to try and reduce the repetitive nature of what she was doing. And unfortunately, in a setting like this, the employer really didn't have a job that would work for her. And so after a period of time, it just became uh, too much for her to bear with all the different health issues. And her you know, employer supported a disability claim. So she started the disability application, she was approved, and she'd been on claim for, as I said, just around that two-year mark. And of course, lo and behold, not surprisingly, as she approached that two-year mark, the insurance company decided that they would send her to an IA, IME, yeah. so an independent medical examination. This is an examination that's done by the insurance company by a hired gun. It's an expert that they hire, someone who's on payroll, who's going to assess a claimant and answer very specific questions around, you know, what's the diagnosis? Is there a basis for this person to remain off work? You know, could they return to work? If so, how quickly? And are there any other treatment recommendations that should be made? And when you've got a physical disability, a lot of the time, John, these assessments are done in person and they are done you know, going through the motions with all of these different tests. Can you lift? Can you grip? Can you bend? Can you run? Can you, mm-hmm. you know, they do a whole host yep. of things. And so uh, it was something similar done for her, um, but it was done virtually. So the insurer did it virtually. And so she was on a screen and trying to mimic, I guess, whatever these different tests were and conclusions were drawn from that. And lo and behold, the conclusion was, yep, you're good to go. You should be able to go back to your physical job, your own occupation. It wasn't even a decision that she could do any occupation. They didn't even go there. They declined her claim right at the cusp of that uh, change of definition and said she could go back to her physical job. And that was the end of it. So 
she came to us and said, you know, what, what do I do? What are my options here? You know, certainly I'd already been down this path with my employer a long time ago. I'm no better now. I'm on a wait list for this surgery and that surgery, I think knee and, and carpal tunnel and some other things anyway. And so I, when I explained to her, look, but, but do you have a copy of the report and how did the assessment go? And then how did you feel after the assessment? And it was clear that, you know, she'd obviously put her best foot forward uh, during the assessment, which was feeling awful. Uh, the rest of the afternoon, the next day, um, she could tell that things had been aggravated in the areas that she would need to rely upon, her body, body really, to rely upon to do her own occupation. But what she hadn't done was actually get a copy of the assessment. So she didn't actually receive the report that the insurance company was relying upon, that they had actually referenced in the decline letter. She didn't have a copy of that. And she didn't really know whether her doctor had a copy of that. And so this is really the starting point, I think, for her to start to think about how do I challenge the insurance company and what they have done in terms of cutting off her claim prematurely. I think there's a whole host of issues just on the face of it, John. For example, this idea that she could actually go back to her own occupation based on this one assessment that was done virtually. I think there are inherently some issues there, of course, because with a physical disability, if you're not testing an individual in person, at the very least, I think the, the conclusions that you draw from a virtual assessment in a situation like that will be brought into question. I don't think an insurance company is really going to be able to stand up before a judge and say, yep, this is what we're you know, riding all the way to the bank um, and going to maintain that this individual cannot uh, ca is capable of work. And the insurance companies know this, of course, but when you've got a relatively um, you know, a person who doesn't really understand how to navigate these things, you know, it's easy for someone like this to sort of walk away and just assume that she or he does not have any options. So look, the key takeaway in my mind is if you're going to do an assessment like this, really be sure that your doctor is aware of what's happening and that your doctor is part of that process. In other words, you do want your doctor to get a copy of that report and you want the doctor to be available to you to provide a rebuttal or a response to the conclusions that might be drawn from a report like this. Because the ultimate outside of this is that she's now lost her benefits. She's really in a tough spot because she knows she can't go back to her employer. She's already been around the block on that. And so what happens in a situation like this? You do have to challenge the disability insurer. At least I'm encouraging those who are listening to challenge the disability insurer because this is a tactic. Right, John, and they use this regularly. They'll spend a little money on the file, and they'll do that knowing that they're going to be able to get that closure, and they can justify that closure based on one piddly assessment that was <laughs> done really not in an effective way, and you're resulting in being able to, at least from the insurance company's perspective, bring that claim to a close. And many people, many people, John, walk away from situations like this, not knowing what is my next step, what is my next move, what do I do here. And for me, that's frustrating because it's giving the insurance companies a pass and it means that their tactics are working. And I don't want to see that happen to individuals who are in situations like this woman. So look, we're going to get a copy of the assessment report. We're going to get retained. We're going to challenge the disability insurer. But if this is sounding familiar and you're not sure where to start, don't hesitate to give us a call. We go through this, this type of thing very regularly. We can take a few minutes with you. It's all free. We'll talk you through with your options and then you make choices, but at least you're empowered in knowing what your rights are. I mean, she didn't even really understand, John, when I spoke with her, that she could get a copy of the report, that there was even an avenue to actually challenge the disability insurer. None of this was uh, was made aware to her because, of course, 
you know, you get this letter and you read the first part and that's, you kind of end there and you don't yeah. really understand all the junk that they're saying to you in this letter with appeals and legal claims and all these other things. Um, and so it's tough, but this is why I think it's so important. I'm so committed to, you know, doing the shows and doing our consults and the framework in which we provide people with information because we empower them with those choices. And then you have the ability to be back in the driver's seat. You're not being responsive to what the insurance company is saying. You're making decisions that make the most sense for you, your health, and your family. Well, I think it's also purposely designed to be intimidating to the whole David and Goliath thing. So people generally give up unless they've heard the show. Then they know they know better than to reach out or know better to reach out to you. But I think that's a huge factor. And I think that's why the insurance companies, in many cases, get away with it, right? Absolutely. Because... You, you generally will never look at what your disability policy says. You generally have no idea if they have, you know, their own guidelines that they have to follow. You have no sense of whether or not there is a role for a lawyer to play because they're not going to tell you that part, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that the biggest issue really is that when you're getting these communications, a lot of it doesn't make sense, right? A lot of it is not intended for just um, a regular John Jane Doe to look through it and say, yep, I understand what this means. Um, and I don't think that the adjusters really do a good job of explaining what it means. Because if they were to do that, they know that individuals are like, wait a minute, okay, I don't have to accept what you're saying to me. Right. It, it, it's almost a human nature thing where you're sort of like, oh, well, they must have told me this. So it must be true. And I must def therefore not have an ability to challenge what they've said to me. Um, and, and they frame it intentionally that way, John. It, it reads that way when you look at the letters. It, it, the way they communicate to, to claimants is that way, that it is a very one sided process. And there's not a lot you can do um, if you're being in a situation where you're responding to this. So I, I don't like it, of course. I do think it is very much a David and Goliath type situation. And, you know, let's not forget these terms and conditions that these insurers are putting in their policies, they're not getting a huge pushback from employers either, right? Like, it's not like the employer contact who's coming up with this contract is going to say, yeah, I'm going to change the wording so that it reads this way or that way. Generally, there's a quote-unquote standard, and that standard is being put out there by insurers, and they will put things in these policies that will favor the insurance company and they rate the premiums accordingly and away they go and let's not forget this is at the end of the day they are profit making entities they're large companies they're large corporations and this model only works if they're receiving premiums at a higher level than they're paying out claims and that's the way that works. And uh, there's always some satisfaction to be had. Simply reach out to Tamar and her team. They field questions every day, all day. So there's always a, a solution to be had. Again, it's just a matter of you uh, getting on the phone or grabbing your uh, your smartphone, sending along the email. That number, by the way, as we get into a short break, one 821 5900 simple and the email we're going to use in just a moment here you can use it anytime in fact your uh, your email might end up on a future show help at disabilityrights.ca and for any other questions again something you can type this is a website that uh, as we keep mentioning is both free and anonymous and it's searchable called mydisabilityquestions.com you can check that out as well we'll continue disability law show stand by all right, welcome back. Disability Law Show. Good to have you with us today for the entire hour. You can always contribute anytime. John Scholes here, by the way, and Tamara Gopian, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. That's where she comes from, and that's where she's going to stay, helping 
tons of people sort through these uh, these scary and sometimes turbulent waters of dealing with an insurance company, whether it's a matter of being cut off or asked to appeal or uh, some other static you're receiving from your adjuster or uh, the people uh, inside the uh, the insurance office, just reach out. Just reach out and have a chat with Tamar anytime. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Dwayne, that's where we're going. Thanks, pal. Appreciate the email. Says, uh, hey, Tamar, I've worked uh, for over 30 years at the same company in a management role. Because of my health, I had to go off work and apply for LTD benefits. I was two years from retirement. My position pays base salary plus a percentage of the company's profits. My LTD benefit only covers my base salary, which isn't much. Is there anything more I should be looking at? It's a great email. Mm, I like this email, John. Yeah. Thank you, Dwayne, for reaching out. So, look, is there anything more you should be looking at? Issues like this, where there could be a potential shortfall of your disability benefit, really the finger pointing is typically to your employer. That's the, that's the hard part, the hard messaging that I have to give out to Dwayne, because it sounds like Dwayne has insured for long-term disability benefits through his employer. So it's not a private plan. And frankly, most of what we talked about talk about on the show are these group disability plans that are available through your employer. And so what ends up happening, John, is that they create a group, the employer that is, with a number of employees. They may have different divisions or classes, but at the end of the day, they submit that to the insurer. The insurer rates the premium and the employer starts to play the premium themselves or passes it along to their employees for this coverage, typically including disability insurance as well. The thing is, though, it's usually an enhancement, an extra amount that has to be remitted if you're being insured for something more than just your base salary. And there's lots of jobs that are like this, John, where there's a base and a commission. Um, You know, there's jobs that are straight commission and there is no base salary amount. And this is why it becomes really, really important to look at those details when you first take your your new job. You want to see, what am I insured for? Really do look at your booklet. Most people don't. Take a look or go on your online portal and see what you're insured for as your salary base amount for your LTD benefit. Because if there's the option to enhance that or go back to your employer and say, hey, look, my base is a far smaller percentage of my overall salary, you guys really need to be bumping this up in case I am in a situation where I need benefits, then you can have that conversation early on. But most people don't. Most people just assume they're going to be covered. And the worst part is, is that when you get to the disability realm, we know that long-term disability benefits is never at 100%. It's always some portion of what you were making before. And usually that portion is about a third, you know, 66.67% of what your salary was. And so if in a situation like Dwayne, where the salary is actually not being fully represented, you can imagine now it's a fraction of a fraction, not a lot for him to rely upon as a disability benefit. But what do you do? You got to go back to your employer and say, look, you underrated this. There's a massive shortfall here. You guys know that I've got uh, a disability status you know I've been a long-time dedicated employee. I'm really in a striking distance to my retirement. What are my choices here? What are my options here? Is there something more that can be done? But again, most employers don't realize necessarily that they are the target if there is this kind of a shortfall. The insurance company is going to turn around and say, well, we just accept the dollar amounts that are reported about what Dwayne's salary is. 
and we rate those premiums accordingly. So if there's something more that there needs to be offered coverage for, then we need to have that dialogue with the employer for the whole group or for certain individuals for that group. So really technical insurance broker kind of information here, but I want to be responsive to what Dwayne has raised. And so I'm, I, I'm wondering whether or not there is a possibility of a potential partial work capacity for Dwayne as opposed to a full-on disability status. I don't really know what his exact circumstances are from a health perspective, but you know if that can be explored with the employer and have the disability insurer sort of work as a top-up until you get to the point of retirement, and again, I'm assuming, John, that's age 65, then that may make more financial sense for Dwayne to get him through those years until he can officially, quote-unquote, retire. The other thing I wanted to comment on was what does retirement mean in the context of a disability claim, John? Because we assume retirement is a certain age or a certain status. And in fact, disability policies will say that your benefits will end at age 65, or some will say at retirement, it's because there are some employees who can retire before they turn 65. Teachers, for example, come to mind because they have certain factors and numbers that have to be reached for years of service versus their pension contributions, and they can retire sooner than that, that 65 mark. And so that gives some employees the option to retire sooner, but be mindful that when you do, then it may close the door on disability benefits. So you can't assume that disability benefits are going to continue if you're you're not 65 and you choose, quote unquote, that retirement status with your employer. So the devil really is in the details. You want to get a copy of that policy. You want to understand where it says, or perhaps send an email to your HR saying, hey, when are my benefits ending? Do they end if I choose retirement versus disability? Understand what those rights are before you make those kinds of choices. Because the last thing I want people to do, including for Dwayne, is to close doors that would otherwise have been open to him by way of compensation. Dwayne, nicely done. Appreciate the correspondence. You can reach out and follow up with a phone call anytime to Tamar and uh, her team behind her for sure. one 821 5900 let me ask you this so when you uh, when you start an LTD claim how much involvement is required from your clients as the case moves along because we often say that you know once once you guys are involved the uh, the irritating phone calls from adjusters etc cetera, etc cetera, cease to exist which is a, a nice little bonus right it absolutely is a nice little bonus i mean i think for most of my clients it's it's the best part john is that now the insurance company is my problem the adjuster's not going to call you no one from the insurance company is going to call you I am going to deal with them. That becomes my issue, and I do it gladly, okay? Because really, what I want to offer as part of our services, and our whole team is like this, John, not just myself, but my colleagues, my partners, the associates at our firm, we really want to allow our clients the time that they need to focus on their recovery. That's really the the goal, right? This is why they, you take a disability leave. It's not so that you just sort of you know, want to be in a situation like this, nobody wants to be in a disability status. People want to be healthy, functioning, part of, you know, engaged in their lives and work and everything else. And so, you know, when insurers, when people have gone through that process with insurers, it can be very deflating. It can feel, you know, very difficult, almost to the point of harassment sometimes with the number of phone calls some people have to get to deal with their adjusters. And so, 
when we get involved, I want the clients to feel empowered and I want them to be at ease that someone is dealing with that part of it. That stressful part of it is now gone. And so I say to my clients, look, you can talk to me as many times or as little as you want. I don't want to be the adjuster. I don't want to call you every week. We don't need to talk every week if we don't need, if you don't want to talk to me every week. But if you do, I'm here and we've got a team as well. And so, you know, I let my clients take that lead as to how involved they want to be in the process. But I set those expectations early on to say, look, you retained us now. This is part of our services. I will deal with the insurance company. I will even coordinate with your doctors about what medical information that I might need to, to build that disability claim, to really have a good basis to challenge the disability insurer for more benefits. And if I need anything, I'll come to you. Uh, but certainly most of my contact with my clients, of course, is going to be more positive than an adjuster calling them saying, okay, have you had treatment? What's going on? When are you going back to work? This and you know, the tone of those things can be really, really deflating and difficult for people to navigate. So we try and take that away and, you know, have as little involvement from our clients as they wish to have. That is the main thing. Because frankly, you know, it's a partnership too, right, John? We are mm -hmm. partnering with our clients to take on the disability insurer, but we will sh we will bear we will sh shoulder that burden uh, as much as needed so that individuals can focus on their health. Want to move on to Ash's email. Ash, thank you so much ahead of time for sending this along. Help at disabilityrights.ca says my disability insurer accepted my claim for another three months, which was stated in a letter that I got. But at the end of the month, I didn't receive my benefit payment. Can they stop my payments without notification? No, they, they, they're <laughs> not supposed to. They're not supposed to. Um, I mean, it, of course, it has happened. And this is not the first time I've heard this, Ash, unfortunately. But here's what I would do. I'd contact them right away and get to the bottom of it. Uh, don't wait. Um, understand what's happening in terms of why the benefit was not released. Uh, is it a glitch or is this something that's being done by the insurance company to cut off or end the benefit sooner than they, they committed to you for doing so? And if you're not sure what's happening or you're not getting a straight answer from the insurance company, again, I don't want individuals to hesitate to contact us to have a discussion about what our options could be. Because, you know, insurers, unfortunately, John, will take more time than necessary to respond to claimants. And sometimes <laughs> they're not very transparent about managing the expectations of when a response is expected or when something's going to happen. That's because most insurers don't really have any kind of guidelines or processes or commitment to timeframes to any of these claimants, would you believe? So they want you to apply at a certain time frame. They want you to meet their requirements on when things are needed to be done that you need to attend this or provide this medical, they will provide lots of deadlines in their communications to you, but they will not commit to those deadlines as a response themselves, okay? Mm. It's really unfortunate and very frustrating, especially when you haven't heard what's happening. You know, for example, I can think of many people I've spoken with who are like, look, I applied for benefits, I've sent my application, haven't heard anything from the insurance company, and it's been X number of weeks, X number of months. That's not right. Okay. None of this is right. None of it is correct. But because insurers are not training their case managers to say, you must respond on a certain period of time, these case workers don't really have any checks and balances. 
other than you as a claimant putting that pressure on them to get a response, there's nobody, you know, really above them saying, you know, yes, you have to do this by this set period of time. Because frankly, the longer they take, the likelihood is higher potentially that you either return back to work or you give up with your claim entirely. Either, neither scenario is good, John, and I'm certainly not suggesting that's what Asha should do in a situation like this. In fact, quite the opposite, but it is a tactic, and it is one that can be very frustrating when you're also trying to deal with my health claim, my you know appointment with my physiotherapist or my psychologist. I need to go back and see my doctor. I now need to fill this medication and do this and that. That in and of itself can be very overwhelming even when you're not working and not necessarily engaging in all of your full daily activities. This health issue is so pervasive that it's disabling you to a point where you're probably not accessing all of the resources in your life that you typically would. And fair enough, that's what these benefits are there for. So if you're in a situation like Asha and you're sort of scratching your head thinking, what's happening with my benefits? Don't wait. Don't sit back. Document. Send an email. Give a call. These insurance companies have customer service lines. If you get a claim number, even better. And then you can then hopefully get a response from someone as to what's happening with your claim. Asha, nicely done. Appreciate that. I hope that answer uh, helped in part. But uh, you can always go a little further. And by that, I mean to chat with uh, Tamar. And how do you do that? one 821 5900 You've already used the email address, but I'll give it out to those listening as we get into a break here. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. Your email might appear on a future show, so we'll, we'll hold you to that. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you here in just a bit. But we've got lots more to go here in the show, so stand by. Send along some emails, and we'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang on. And we're back. Disability Law Show still got some time. Your correspondence is always welcome. You can do it uh, right here. Maybe get your email on air sometime. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. And always taking the phone calls free and uh, no problem just having a chat with Tamar and her team. Tamar Gopian here, uh, courtesy Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. And that number, one 855 for a more of a private lengthier conversation with Tamar or a member of her crew. That's the number you want to use. You're always invited to uh, pick up a phone and do that. You know, when you start a legal claim tomorrow, how often does your, uh, I guess, your view of the case change as the case goes along? Because they can take some time to get through. If it, if it does change, what types of things will impact that change or people should be aware of? Yeah, re- really good question, John. So just to explain to individuals, what does that process look like? So you would contact us, we would have a conversation, I would talk you through your options. And if it's a matter that we can assist with, I will encourage an individual to retain us and we'll start that process. That process, though, at the beginning, when we're we're just talking and, and doing our free consultation, John, will include some exchange of information. We will ask for a copy of the decline letter or letters from the insurance company, perhaps some recent medical information, and we'll have some context as to what the basis of this of the disability claim is and what the legal issues are before we get into it. And we like to have that conversation early on with potential clients. And then, you know, of course, we will encourage to retain us and start that process. And once we do, we'll send a notice letter to the insurance company saying, hey, we're involved. No more contact, right, with our clients. We deal with that, as we talked about in our prior mm-hmm. segment. That stress goes away for our clients. And we also ask for a full copy of the claims file. So I want to know exactly what the back and forth was with the insurance company and my client. 
I want to know what did they rely upon in their file to ultimately deny or decline the benefit claim for my client. And that serves as a really good purpose to figure out where the issues are. I'll start the legal claim as well on that basis. And then I can work with my client and potentially their medical team to fill in those gaps as I build the disability claim against the insurer. So when does my thought process change? Oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes my thoughts around the strength of the claim are pretty well crystallized out of the gates because we do so much dialogue with our potential clients before we start that process of the legal claim. I mean, it can change. I don't want to say that I have tunnel vision by no means. I wouldn't be a good, effective disability lawyer if I did that. But I think that if you don't do that proper dialogue early on with a potential client, then you don't, it's it's just good training. I mean, this is how I was trained to do it when I was a baby lawyer. You want to have those issues established. You want to understand the case. Uh, and then you want to move forward with that case. But of course, it can happen that things change. And so what would impact my view of the claim? Most certainly, if there were assessments or reports or medical information that I wasn't aware of, perhaps that that contradicts what the initial opinions were about my client's disability claim, not only the nature of the claim, but perhaps the longevity of it. How long is it going to go for? How protracted is it? If there are medical opinions on file, either from my client's medical records or the insurance company's records that really are solid and that say something different, that the claimant should be back at work or there is some work capacity, then of course that is the fundamental issue with disability, right? And that would, of course, change my view. I I can't think of an instance where that has necessarily happened, John. Um, That's very, very rare. Uh, But yep, that could be one that could change or shift Perhaps a new health event as well can also change and shift. That I can think of. Yeah, I can think of a very specific one, actually. Um, I had a client some years back who uh, came to to us for a consultation and then retained us after she had recovered from cancer. She had ongoing what we call neuropathy. So, uh, you know, tingling and numbness and issues with her hands and feet. And she had a largely sedentary type job, so a lot of computer work. There was some travel involved. And so when you've got these lingering health issues from uh, recovering from cancer, it can be really difficult to resume uh, your occupational duties. And and that's the situation she was in. So we got retained. We challenged the disability insurer. And wouldn't you know it, lo and behold, the cancer came back in a different part of her body. Okay, very difficult situation, of course. But of course, naturally, that shifted the onus and responsibility of the insurance company to have continued her disability benefits. It it really hammered home the fact that they prematurely declined her. And so it made the case stronger and made the case better, even though I know my client was struggling. It, it allowed me then to leverage that much more what the medical information was and to extricate, of course, a very good result for her by way of a buyout of the disability policy. And we did it fairly quickly. So I think that, you know, some changes, some perspectives can be positive in the sense that positive to leverage against the insurance company, perhaps not so much from a health perspective, but it can be a positive outcome at the end of the day. 
And what was amazing was that I was already involved, John, when all of this happened, right? So it, it, there was no real delay then when that shift occurred. I was there, the legal claim was ongoing, and we really were able to get an effective result in a situation like that. Really good stuff, guys. If you want to reach out to Tamar, just based on what we talk about here in the show, don't hesitate just to have a chat because, man, it can be so confusing dealing with these uh, these insurance companies for sure. one 821 5900 is how you do that. Latoya is the next email up. Says, hi, Tamar. Thank you so much. Love the show. My brother has long COVID. He goes to a clinic that specializes in helping patients like him suffering from long COVID. The clinic was telling him that their patients are having a hard time getting approved for LTD benefits or CPP disability based on a long COVID diagnosis. I'm wondering, what kind of information is the insurance company looking for? Any information you could provide would be greatly appreciated. That from Latoya. That's a great, great question. So long COVID. Um, you know, it's one of these conditions that have a variety of different symptoms that go with the diagnosis. And we've talked about it a couple of times on the show that a lot of these symptoms cannot be seen on a scan. It's very difficult to see it on an x-ray. I mean, there's n- there's not really much there. Um, some pulmonary conditions can be, but, you know, generally fatigue, uh, mm-hmm. cognitive issues, brain fog, these are sorts of the things that we are seeing with long COVID um, individuals and diagnoses. And so, unfortunately, I'm not surprised that there's some resistance here about getting approved for disability benefits, either with, with disability insurers or with CPP. But let's speak more specifically about this, John, maybe after our next break. Um, and I want to get into the weeds a little bit about what type of information uh, Latoya can guide her brother in terms of getting to try and challenge uh, the decline of any sorts of benefits. Love it. Latoya, stand by. Thank you so much again for the email. It's uh, it's great stuff. Helping to educate everybody uh, indeed. That email address you can use, of course, help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number to reach out to Tamar and her team, one 821 5900 We'll continue. Uh, some more time to go here in the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Good to have you along. John Scholes, Tamar Agopian, Sam Firu, Tamar and LLP to reach out to Tamar. Anytime, you're always welcome to make that phone call and have a chat with your concerns or anybody you know who's uh, been reaching out, maybe not sure where to go, that's where you go, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. We just uh, got into Latoya's uh, email tomorrow, a good one too, all about long COVID and the diagnosis and information that the uh, insurance company is looking for. Uh, getting approved for LTD or even CPP at that point with long COVID. It's a, a recent phenomenon, last couple of years, right? So this is going to take some uh, some time to get insurance companies to wake up and, and wise up and get on board, right? What do you think about it? Uh, absolutely. And I, and I think that's really the core of the issue, John, is that it's mm-hmm. not a very well-known you know, condition and there isn't really a good treatment plan, if any. And I think when there is unknown you will get some resistance from disability insurers. And we've said this a few times since the post-COVID world that I think insurers are concerned about opening the floodgates with claims like this uh, and not really knowing how to manage it because claims adjusters are box checkers, John. They just, you know, oh, it's anxiety. It takes three to six weeks to recover. Take this medicine and you're back and you're back at work, right? And these are the kinds of profiles that fit very well into the way that these adjusters are trained and how they handle these disability claims. They try and do a one size fits all. And long COVID is not that at all. In fact, it's very different individual to individual. 
And so my advice to Latoya specifically, and by the way, this is to Latoya, but it's to anyone really who has a disability claim, the key issue is function. That's what the insurance company is looking for. So if your function is compromised on different platforms, not just your employment, but let's say in your personal world, social world, self-care, these other things, you want those details explained and validated in the medical information that you're providing to the insurance company or to CPP. And so it just because the doctor doesn't understand how to treat long COVID doesn't mean that those symptoms are not present, that the diagnosis isn't there, and that those the collection of issues that are happening from a health perspective are preventing work or preventing um, someone from being functional enough uh, to, to be able to engage in, in normal, quote unquote, normal activities. And so what I'm generally finding is that what insurers don't like is your own account of this. I, I don't know why that is, John, but there's a lot of cynicism. When I say something, insurance companies like, meh. But when the doctor <laughs> says something, the insurance company seems to take it much more seriously. So even if it's just like, here are the nine things I deal with every single day, having the doctor say, yep, I'm validating these nine things, and I think they are attributable to the long COVID diagnosis, I think will help a lot in getting a better understanding that these individuals have a very real health issues. These very real health issues are preventing them from returning to work and that they fairly should have the compensation that they're entitled to, both by way of long-term disability benefits and CPP disability. But I'm going to add another element to this as well, sure. John, which is my understanding is that the government also has a, a support program when individuals not, I don't know if it's long COVID, but when individuals have reactions to the vaccines, and I think with long COVID, there's other elements of compensation that are coming on the horizon that are not as well known. So I would actually encourage Latoya and her brother to do a little bit of research on other sources of compensation as well. In addition to long-term disability and CPP disability, there's another fund specific to individuals with COVID and COVID-related health issues. So lots of uh, potential avenues, I suppose, provided the medical support is there in order to access these benefits. You know, with many COVID restrictions being relaxed, hey, welcome to Canada. We're finally on board. Uh, they've even been lifted over the past <laughs> months. Uh, has, has that impacted disability claims and the legal process at all or not really? Well, look, I think that we have mostly relegated to virtual uh, proceeding, virtual process, you know, as electronic as we can be. Uh, because the reality is, is that that's been more reliable, frankly, than trying to do in-person things uh, across the board. Having said that, with restrictions being lifted, I think there is going to be more of an inclination to have more in-person assessments, more in-person medical treatment, perhaps even more in-person mediations, and certainly legal proceedings, so in front of a judge or a court. And I think that there it could be at the end of this, if I'm going to sort of, um, you know, theorize here, that perhaps we come out with this as being somewhat of a hybrid model. It, I don't know if it's going to go fully back to in-person in every platform, but I think that there is a lot of value in some things certainly going back to in-person. And and I'm sort of looking at the medical people on, on this one, John, because, you know, I know I've had a lot of clients say to me, Tamar, my doctor is still not allowing me to get back into their office or their clinic. 
They want to do phone calls as much as possible. And I look and I know it's been a hard go. I respect all of our medical professionals out there. This has been a really difficult time for everyone. But I, I think back to what I started off talking about at the top of the show um, with the individual with the IME that was done virtually, you know, that's just not going to cut it when you've got physical disabilities. And so I think that the positive element would be to try and do more things in person. But at the end of the day, if it needs to be virtual to protect the overall health of individuals and the idea that we can continue these legal proceedings without having to drag everyone into a courtroom or a boardroom, I think that's a positive outcome, John. So, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, I think that even with the restrictions being relaxed, you know, could we be facing more challenges on the health side of things. Yes, I think that's realistic. And so what's that going to do with people trying to access treatment, getting appropriate treatment? Now, I got to hope that insurance companies are going to be live to this and thinking about, look, are we going to doggedly pursue our appropriate treatment provision, for example, in our policy when we know we're going through potentially another shutdown or we know that individuals are not accessing, you know, clinics and medical appointments as readily as they should be. Uh, I'm hoping that they're not going to be harsh about it, but I think that, you know, opportunistic, right? Insurance companies are that way. And if they can take advantage of the situation, they will. And so, look, you know, my hope is that we will come out of it with some new normal and a new normal that works for everyone, um, both on the legal proceeding side, the health side, uh, and and for individuals uh, trying to pursue their disability benefits and, and getting the compensation they deserve. Always great stuff to be uh, to be learned on the show tomorrow. Awesome as always. I want to give people uh, some last second here uh, information or at least contact information to reach out for you. Now that we're we're done, the number we always uh, send people to one eight five five eight. 1-855-821-5900 email address that's used every show maybe yours will appear on a future show how about that help at disabilityrights.ca and there's another way to ask questions we talk about mydisabilityquestions.com you can search it as well maybe uh, an email or a question similar to yours rather has been uh, asked before and uh, it'll save you a bit of time typing it if not leave it there and it will get answered it's uh, free it's anonymous mydisabilityquestions.com and then finally we love this one ltdfa Q.ca. That requires nothing more than a little typing and a couple mouse clicks to get into whatever topic uh, you're wondering about when it comes to something personal with LTD. There is a box that will cover it and a drop-down menu once you click on that. So easy to read and understand. It's not legal speak. It's layman's terms, and you can use that anytime. LTDFAQ.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.